You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jonathan Dio, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. You're never going to believe this, but growing up, I wasn't mindful about money at all. I was mindless. In fact, I was so focused on becoming a doctor, I didn't pay attention to money almost ever. I simply defaulted to the modeling provided by my parents, which luckily for me was pretty darn good. They saved, invested, and started side hustles. So when I grew up, I did much the same, often without realizing what exactly I was doing. My money epiphany came later when I started to burn out of medicine. At that point, I realized I had to start being more intentional, which was a very short leap given my parents' teaching. Most people, however, aren't so fortunate. They default to money habits dictated by YOLO or FOMO or keeping up with the Joneses. Or even worse, they become victims of our gargantuan and predatory commercial advertising industry. So, if you don't grow up with the extreme privilege I had, how do you become mindful about money? Jonathan Dio is the best-selling author of Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Reaching Your Financial Goals and Increasing Your Happiness Dividend, and has led a Bay Area wealth management office focused on client education for over two decades. He has been investing in public markets for over four decades, in real estate for nearly three decades, and in other private businesses for over 20 years. After all this investing experience, he believes the two levers we can pull to improve outcomes for families are improving general financial education and embracing financial planning. Jonathan Dio, welcome to Earn and Invest. A basic, simple question. Is money management straightforward? I mean, is it simple out of the box? I think it's very simple out of the box. Care to elaborate? <laughs> you, you, you asked a simple question, I gave you a simple mm -hmm. answer. Yeah. I think that we make it complex. You know, I think that, um, well, it's partially, you know, our psychology, we want more and more and more. It's partially the idea that you, you open up any magazine or newspaper or listen to any radio program about money and they immediately cause you to question everything you've already done. Um, and it's not difficult to end up in that space of, I don't, I don't know what the right thing is. It's a very, you know, mobile space. Stuff is changing all the time. So it's very easy to get lost in, am, am I doing the right thing now? Am I doing the right thing now? Am I doing the right thing now? When, if you just understand what some of those right things are, you know, in the big grand picture of things, you just need to do, 
those things. All the other stuff becomes noise and you can ignore it. We are going to come back to this idea of the noise and how to learn how to do the right things. But before we do, I want to ask some questions about you and your background. On your website, you describe yourself as a Lutheran seminarian turned Buddhist academic turned financial advisor. How the heck did you land here at that endpoint of financial advisor? It's kind of full circle. Like when I was a kid, I was I was enamored of markets. When I was nine years old, I purchased my first stock. Uh, when I started in my undergrad program, I was studying finance. So it was always going to be something that I was interested in doing. Um, and what ended up happening was I got bored studying finance. The first three years of undergrad, I was just like, you know what? I've studied a lot of this stuff. I've already read these books. I don't want to take these courses anymore. And so I had some. I had this great professor, Marvin Shaw, uh, and he was my classics, religious studies professor. And he said, you know what? If you, if you don't like what you're studying, you could easily switch over to this other thing that you like, philosophy and religious studies, and you could spend some time there. You know, and I did, and that led to grad school. So I took this long hiatus to study comparative religion and go deep into Buddhist studies and psychology and all these liberal arts things that were not finance, not money related. And then my wife in grad school, first wife, you know, divorced now, uh, she said, hey, I want to go to school you know, so you, you need to start earning money. So I was like, okay, I'm going to not complete a master's program in Buddhist studies. And, and I have a degree in philosophy and an incomplete MA uh, in Buddhist studies. What's the job for that? Right. So I, I ended up studying, going, going to a Dean Witter and Dean Witter would basically hire anybody to be a broker. And so that's where I started. Let's talk about Buddhist studies and how it impacts your philosophies about money management. People ask me the same question. They're saying, well, what does being a hospice doctor have to do with dealing with money? And I kind of answer, well, kind of everything. Talk to me about how Buddhism has impacted your thoughts and philosophies about money. Uh, it's, I mean, through and through. I mean, so, so the one thing that behavioral finance and Buddhism have deeply in common is the belief that our thoughts create a veil over reality. And if you think about that from a Buddhist perspective, that's pretty much everything Buddhism is trying to do is trying to help you practices, mantras, you know, whatever the school is, it's how do we lift the veil and see reality for what it is. And what that keeps us from doing is doing things like overreacting or succumbing to some sort of emotional stance of the day, which you think about our culture and social media and the spending problems and, and debt levels. And that's a hundred percent driven by our desire to be seen as something. And that desire to be seen as something hurts our finances on a very regular basis. Uh, it, it, our, our desire to be successful in this three months of investing or six months of investing also hurts our finances. So it's the concept of Buddhism and mindfulness and being non-judgmental is enormously beneficial when you think about what, what are my authentic goals, hopes, dreams? You know, how do we establish that? How do we think about that? That's introspection at its best. Um, and then, you know, once I have an idea about what I want my life to be like, how do I make that happen? And that's planning. Uh, and then how do I stay on plan? And that's mindfulness. Right. That's really an important piece of staying on your financial plan is remembering your financial plan. And just like your breath when you're meditating, it's returning to that financial plan. Oh, this thing happens that I didn't expect. You know, what do I do? Well, let's look at the plan. What am I supposed to do? What's the plan tell me to do? And go back to your plan. 
let's come back to this idea of mindfulness. Um, Obviously, this is a big part of your platform. It's part of the name of your book, et cetera. I hate to ask an obvious question, but what exactly is mindfulness? Because I think sometimes these kind of obvious normal words, we don't always know what to do with them. Yeah. I mean, from a Buddhist perspective, uh, and this is the one I basically adopt, um, mindfulness is the non-judgmental awareness of the present moment as you experience it through your senses, thoughts, and feelings. So if that's the case, why are we so irrational about money? Like, why do we have a problem with this mindfulness? Well, we're not we're not mindful. I mean, look, the reality is, I just spent seven days at a at a at a silent meditation retreat, um, and so I should be the most mindful, you know, possible. And I'm still not 100 percent mindful, right? So mindfulness, it's just like a bicep. You have to exercise it. And we, we are told to exercise our biceps. We are not told to exercise our mindfulness. So there is no, you know, underlying uh, resource that we all have access to that, that suggests that mindfulness is an important practice. It is becoming more and more pervasive and there's all kinds of people talking about it. And there's, there's classes at Google and Apple now, and they have mindfulness instructors and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of, I'd say disingenuous use of mindfulness out there. And I'm, I was worried in renaming my firm from DO wealth management to mindful money back in the day, I was worried that I would be lumped in with that sort of, you know, how, how do I, you know, companies where let's let's have mindful employees. So we get higher productivity, right? That's, that's not what this is about, right? Mindfulness is about knowing yourself, understanding how you react to stuff and then managing those reactions better, right? Understanding how you react and maybe start reacting less, start actually thinking and acting instead of reacting. You mentioned this idea that mindfulness is a muscle that we need to exercise. What are some of those basic exercises? Like how do we get better at mindfulness? Well, there's, I mean, there's a ton of research on this. I mean, most of the research tells us that if you spend literally, it's so simple, 10 minutes a day, you can have uh, a measurable impact on the weight size density of your amygdala versus Mm. the weight size density of your frontal lobe. And what does that mean? Uh, That means, you know, you reduce your fight or flight mechanism and you increase your thoughtful response mechanism in, in the simplest terms. Um, and so there's tons of different exercises. I, you know, there's the simple body scan. There's the, uh, just following your breath. You know, if you just close your eyes, you stare at a wall and you just breathe in and you note I'm breathing in and then you breathe out and you note I'm breathing out and you just do that for 10 minutes. What'll happen is you will be distracted. Oh, my knee hurts. Some sound will come from outside and you'll wonder what the sound is. You'll wonder I wonder, did I turn the timer on? You know, you'll wonder all kinds of things will come through your head and you just let those things go and you return to monitoring your breath or whatever a candle or whatever that thing is. You know, the body scan is another favorite where people start at the top of their heads and they just kind of close their eyes and they think about, okay, my scalp is dry. You know, uh, my, uh, I have an itch in my ear and you kind of work down your body and sort of look at all the feelings, what's going on in your body. The idea is to be present with what's actually happening. Um, The reason I like the breath is because the breath is constant. 
Um, some people count their breaths. Some people just note in and then note out and then note in and then note out. That's the easiest one for me to continue with. This last week at the retreat, it's, I, I've done it before, but there's this concept of open awareness meditation where you're just sitting and all the stimulus is happening around you. And you sit outside and you think about the wind blowing through trees. And you think about bird song and the, you know, off to the right. And you think about turkeys off to the left and somebody re- reorganizes their sitting posture. So you hear that sort of rustling in front of you and, and you hear some, some, some groans from someone on the left. And, and so wh- whatever that is, you just sit with it and you let the sounds and the things wash over you. Um, and that's another form of meditation. There's lots of forms of meditation. As you describe mindfulness, obviously, these are a lot of different meditation techniques. Let's bring this into the realm of money. As you were talking and describing Buddhism, you were talking about this idea that there is a veil over reality. And part of Buddhism is trying to learn to see past that veil. We do the same thing with money. And in fact, you call these money illusions. Talk about what are some of those destructive money illusions that most of us carry around that maybe don't really reflect reality. Yeah, you know the the biggest one, uh, the biggest illusion, and and this this there's there's two really big ones. One, we confuse money and currency, um, and that's actually a really 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 important problem because it changes the sort of our risk tolerance by not understanding what 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 uh, the difference is between money and currency. Um, so that the way it goes is is everybody uh, prefers safer investments and there's research that says yes if you know all else being equal i'd rather have safer than than uh, um, riskier investments but the the problem becomes you know what is it that you're baseline risking and this is the problem of money versus currency if my 20 dollar bill would always and forever be able to buy 20 dollars worth of goods um, and those goods would be the identical basket of goods today as in 20 years from now then it would be really important for me to protect my money Right. But that's not how, how currency works. Like if, if I have $20 uh, today to purchase things 20 years from now, that's going to be worth about eight or nine dollars worth of goods. Right. So it's the basket of goods declines over time. And that's called inflation. And we're kind of experiencing that, you know, writ large today. But if we remember that we're, what we're trying to protect is currency, then we choose different investments that will help us protect our currency value, which means our purchasing power. Uh, and that's and that's really our money, sorry. Uh, and that's really, really an important understanding is, is the difference between money and currency. I think the second really big illusion or uh, challenge we have is that risk is the same thing as volatility. And it, it really does factor into that money versus currency question. Um, if if risk is zigs and zags of markets, then markets are risky and people avoid risk. But that's really not true, right? Markets are volatile, but it isn't market volatility that creates problems. It's the human response to market volatility that creates problems. And so this idea of, of volatility being reality and risk being our, you know, Miss, miss or, or, or unappropriate actions when markets go up and we get excited or markets go down and we get depressed and we react uh, or, you know, of equal problems for us as we get excited about this next purchase and think it's going to, it's going to change our lives in some kind of way. And then we make the purchase and then, 
you know, turns out doesn't really change our lives and our happiness level goes back to where it was before. And, 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 and there we are, we've just spent a bunch of money that we could have used in a different way had we thought it through. Right. So that's, that's kind of, it's kind of how those pieces work together. And in fact, you make the point, and I think it's generally accepted for a long-term investor, volatility is a good thing, right? It's, it's a fantastic thing. I mean, it is absolutely your friend while you're investing. It's the only people that should be concerned at all are people that are like retired and they're relying on that income stream that comes from the portfolio. And then there's just the question is, and, and I always hear this, and I'm sure you've heard this adage, right? Your, um, uh, what is it? Your, your age in bonds. Right. Or maybe it's 120 minus your age and bond, something like that. Uh, and, and I've always thought that was goofy. Like it, it all, it all should be personal. It all should be based on what's right for you. So you got to do the math. You got to have a plan. You got to think about what it actually means for you and then stick with it. And it shouldn't your equity versus fixed income, uh, in a portfolio should have nothing to do with how old you are. It should have to do with your risk tolerance and have to do with your need and have to do with your, you know, your acumen, your ability to deal with. Um, some of the challenges that are coming down the pipe, your ability to sit on your hands and be non-judgmental when everything else around you is falling apart. In your book, Mindful Money, you really break it into three sections. The first section talks about these money illusions and why it's important to see through them, which transitions into a conversation about happiness. And I want to quote you here. You basically say, happiness is not a mystery. And in a sense, I almost beg to disagree with you a little bit here. Do most people really know what happiness looks like? And is there a straightforward answer? Well, so there, let me, let me sort of talk about what it is I mean by it's not a mystery. I mean, it's a well-researched, well-documented, thoroughly discussed topic. Um, and I talk about eight pillars of happiness. And, you know, when I did the research for the book, there was, I could have had seven pillars. I could have had 10 pillars. I try to consolidate some. So I'm not, I'm not sort of married to the concept of eight pillars, but there are definitely things that we absolutely know make us happier, bring us more well-being, you know, lead to, to, to better lives if we pursue them. And some of the big ones, and we know this because when you ask folks that have been retired for 20 years, um, you know, what's really important to them, their health is critically important to them, their friendships are critically important to them. So that it's relationships and health, those two things. If you're doing anything in your life to hurt those two things, you are hurting your long term happiness. No question about it. You know, I, I, you know, I'm certain of that as a fact. Some of the others, you know, gratitude, yep, gratitude's probably pretty important. Um, you know, things like um, being held, holding yourself accountable. I think that's important. You know, I think it's a question whether or not it's, you know, it's an eight pillar item, um, but there's definitely things that we know and are well-researched and well-documented that add to human well-being. Uh, and, and, and that's really what I'm talking about. Now, that's general. And so now the question is, and this is why being introspective is really important, which of these things and to what degree is important to you? That's specific. And that's, people struggle with figuring that out. But if they don't first know what the six or seven or eight or nine things that might work are, then they don't they don't have a place to start with their introspection. So the idea is, this is a good place to start. See how these things resonate with you. So I want to talk about two things specifically. One thing that's left out of that list of pillars and one thing that's in that list of pillars. First and foremost, what's left out, nowhere in those eight pillars is money or wealth. Um, no. That's not a pillar to happiness. No. Why not? I mean, doesn't money make us happy? No, it doesn't. 
uh, money makes us more of who we are. Uh, and there, there is, there is sort of two different layers of research on this. One, the first layer of research talks about, uh, I think when it was done, it was $75,000. You know, once you reach $75,000 of income, which means basically most of your needs are met, um, and it's, you know, adjusted for inflation, maybe it's 83 now, maybe it's 90, you know, but there's really not additional happiness that can be had beyond that income. What that means is, okay, so maybe you have a hundred thousand dollar income. You use that additional $15,000 for some kind of spending. And that may be good for a short period of time, a short little boost, a little injection of happiness. But then we revert. We always revert back to sort of an average level of happiness. That is maybe it's genetic, maybe it's our own histories, you know, but it doesn't matter how much we earn to make a difference. The second tier of research, and this is a little bit more recent, um, says that while happiness doesn't increase, it's like a different, a different, you know, there's all kinds of words for this. There's happiness, there's well-being, there's satisfaction. So happiness doesn't increase, but satisfaction increases. It's a, it's a much lower percentage increase over time. But if you make $200,000, your life satisfaction is a little bit higher than if you make $100,000. If you make $800,000, yeah, it's it's even a little bit higher. So there is a slight benefit to more money, but I would almost argue that it's not the more money that is the benefit. It's when I have more money, I have more time to focus on my health. I have more, more, more ability to focus on my friendships. I can take my friends out to lunch. That feels good to me. It feels good to them. Um, so that's 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 why money is not one of the pillars. So we talked about the idea that money is not one of the pillars. So let's look at some of the other pillars. Health, we kind of get that. We know what that is. Engagement, relationships, accountability, generosity, optimism, gratitude. Again, I think just hearing those things, I know kind of exactly what they are. And then, of course, there is meaning, which is a question I get asked about all the time. Talk to me about that pillar of meaning and, and maybe how we go about finding what has meaning for us. I, I think this is where we fall down the most. And I think this is the most difficult question. We sort of operate from the hip mostly. And unless we get deeply introspective, unless we actually start thinking about what is really important to me, which you know, an unexamined life is, what is it? Unexamined life is more worth, is worth living, right? If people, once you ask the question, what's important, then you're sort of plagued by, well, I'm not doing what's important or I'm not pursuing the thing. And then it's, then it, you can kind of beat yourself up about stuff. And I think, I think many, many, many people never ask the question. They don't think about things that way. And I, I would say, I love my wife. She's not, she's not all about that, which is fine. She lives great and she has a good time. And I, I've been asking the question since, I don't know, middle school, you know, what does life mean? What's the whole point of this? You know, and that's why the move from finance to philosophy, religious studies, but it's, it's a difficult question. And if people don't spend the time individually, they never figure out what's important to them. And you can, in our culture, you can move from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, and never know. And you can be just fine, right? That's fine. Um, if you want to have a life that is imbued with meaning, with purpose, I think there's a benefit to it. I think it's one of the it's a it's a critical element of your, you know, pillars of happiness. It's a, it's a very important thing. As as you're aware, you know, talking to uh, people in hospice. 
Is there a flip side to that? I mean, I've definitely encountered people here and there who get so caught up on this idea of meaning and purpose and having trouble figuring out what that means to them that they almost get stuck. Is this something you've noticed? Uh, That's happened to me. Like, absolutely. You know, I, you you sort of pick a path, you do your introspection. Your actual introspection is infected by all your biases and all your thinking, Right. And so, and so you, you pick a path that's one that you like, but one that's also acceptable and one that people can understand. So that when you tell the story about it, you're acceptable and they like you. Right. So I, I've done that. I've done that. So this is, this is where you have to be really, you know, honest with yourself and you say, this is really what I want. And don't get, you, you don't beat yourself up. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. This is not the, the, the goal of the exercise isn't to be correct in any way. The goal of the exercise is to discover, is to figure out what's important to you and then have the courage to to, to pursue that. And I found at least with people I've talked to and myself included, one of the hard things is to let go of the preconceived notions of what we think should be yep. meaningful to us. So a lot of us carry around these societal beliefs or family beliefs or even internal beliefs of this should be important to me. So I'm going to try to make myself fit into this kind of square peg. And part of maybe figuring this out is letting go of kind of all those preconceived notions and trying to figure out what actually speaks to you as a person. Yeah. For for me, like I, I was raised and I, and I think a lot of this comes out, you know, out of our upbringings because we have experiences as kids and those those experiences as kids sort of makes us who we are, right? So as a as a kid, um, I didn't have we didn't I didn't have stuff like my, we were poor, so I grew up wanting stuff, and so I grew up with this idea that I'm going to study finance, which is why I got interested in the stock market, why I got interested in in making money and small business and things because I, I was going to not be in the same uh, position as my parents were at at you know at that point when I was a kid, and so. What I learned though, fast forward 30 years, I had this thing in my head that said, pursue money. I pursued money, got very successful at it, got money, did very, very well with it, um, and was not fulfilled by it. Right. And so this is why in my own story last year, 2021 in June, when my brother died, I changed. Like I said, okay. I, I have, I've been financially successful, but the thing that my brother and I kept putting off and kept putting off and kept putting off, we were going to do together. Now we can't do it together. So I'm going to actually pick up that mantle and I'm going to go with it. Um, and so now I've taken the, the knowledge and the information and the stuff that I've learned working with people for 25 years. Um, and I'm trying to have an effect sort of further down the socioeconomic scale. Um, and that has meaning for me. Um, and that that's, I'm super excited calls, two calls so far today about how do we use the mindful money, you know, financial literacy program for our groups. And I just give it, I'm like, fantastic. Here's a, here's a link. Let me get on a call with your people and let's talk you, let's talk you through how to do it. We are talking to Jonathan Dio. He is the best-selling author of Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Reaching Your Financial Goals and Increasing Your Happiness Dividend. We are going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast.
Yo, this is Doc G, and I am hanging out at the Mr. Money Mustache headquarters here in Longmont, Colorado. It is two days before Thanksgiving, and I just wanted to take a moment to say what I'm thankful for mostly... It is for all of you listening to Earn and Invest. Thank you for being part of this community. Thank you for buying my book, Taking Stock. I hope you all have a happy Thanksgiving. I am lucky enough to be hanging out here with some of the people I love the most. So you're going to hear some voices. They're going to tell you what they are thankful for. Hey, this is Sarah Putt from OT for Life. And this year for Thanksgiving, I am very thankful to be around good friends and closer to my family. Hey, this is Ray from Waffles on Wednesday, and I'm super thankful for my family and all of the folks that we have around and and our our kids that we have now. Thanks. Hi, this is Abby. Can you say Abby? Abby. And I am thankful for? Abby. Box, box. I'm Doug Cunnington from Mile High Fi, and I'm thankful for... Being able to see my family in the past uh, couple weeks, actually won't be spending time with them on Thanksgiving Day, but I was invited to a few different parties, which makes me feel great, and we'll be able to spend time with friends here in Longmont. Have a wonderful time. Hey, this is Chris from Life Outside the Maze with a special guest, my wife, Jess. And I'll start... Um, you know, I'm thankful this year I actually had cancer and I beat said cancer. And the big lesson for me was, you know, Phi is fantastic, um, but the most important things are time and health to spend with the people you love. So I'm very thankful for that. I'm also very thankful for my husband's good health um, and he, that now that he's in remission. I also stepped away from my full-time work this year, and I'm really thankful that I have more time to spend with him and my kids and my friends. Hi there. This is Mindy Jensen with the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. And just like everybody else, I'm thankful for friends and family and good food and good health and blah, 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 blah. But I am also thankful for identity and purpose. <laughs> just like Doc G. And I am thankful for most of all, especially today, turkey stuffing, stovetop stuffing specifically, and pecan pie. Hello, my name is Carl Jensen from the Mile High Five podcast and the 1500 Days blog. And Jordan, you asked this question and it's a pretty difficult one. It's simple but complicated all at the same time. But what I have to be thankful for is that I have so many things in life to be thankful for. Uh, Growing up, life was a little bit rough. I won't get into that, but now it's turned out so well and such good community, such good friends, such good family. And uh, yeah, my life has surpassed all my expectations. So I'm thankful that I have so much to be thankful for. Thank you, Jordan. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking to Jonathan Dio. He has led a Bay Area wealth management office focused on client education for over two decades. He has been investing in public markets for over four decades and in real estate for nearly three decades and in other private business for over 20 years. Jonathan, let's come back to your book, Mindful Money. As I had mentioned before, it's broken into three separate sections. The first is talking about money illusions and how to see past those. The second is talking about happiness. 
you wait to the last section to finally get to the financial plan. Tell me about the ordering. Why not put the financial plan first? Oh, I, I thought that was obvious. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thanks for the question. Uh, yeah, I don't think you can really honestly do a financial plan without knowing what those without first sort of, you know, getting rid of some of those illusions or understanding some of the things that are going to get in your way and then understanding what you're actually planning for. Uh, you know, plans usually involve goals. And I can I can say that most people have a goal to retire someday, send their kids to college if they have kids, you know, take care of their parents if they need to, and they have lifestyle goals. So everyone has some, you know, a, a similar basket of goals, but we don't know until we're introspective, until we think about what's important to us in that middle section of the book. We don't know how to weight those things. We don't know how to, you know, how important is and how do we how do we honor the things that actually bring us happiness in our plan. Um, and one of the examples in the book is, you know, what, if you get a job offer that is requires an hour and a half each morning and evening of of commute, and it has and it pays fifty thousand dollars more than the job that requires ten minutes of commute, how, how do you decide? which job to take. Well, that that matters a lot on how you're taking care of those, those things of happiness. Maybe the $50,000 is worth it. Maybe it's not. Maybe the three hours is more important because that helps you build relationships and take care of your health. That's the sort of the trade-off. I find that people see a financial plan as dollars and cents and kind of orderly and structured. Those are the people who want to jump there first before they get to all of this other kind of more complicated, difficult things. You talk about in the book often about this idea that emotions can get in the way of your financial plan. Give me a little more detail on that. Why do we have trouble sticking to it even once we put that financial plan in place? Yeah. I mean, who is it? Um, uh, the boxer who said uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's the reality is once you build your financial plan, the market, the world, you know, the economy, some senator, you know, a CEO of some company is going to say something that infuriates you. And you're going to think at that moment, this is the end of the world as we know it. And we have two very recent examples. When COVID hit um, two and a half, what is it, three years ago now, uh, two and a half years ago now, uh, everyone thought it was the end of the world. And and literally, I think Fidelity did this study that said like 65, many, 65% of 65 plus year olds sold the vast majority of their equities. And then three months later, it was back at new highs. And so that is that is an emotional reaction in the investment sphere that almost destroys retirement plans. And so it's just something to be aware of. Also in the spending sphere, like if you are, if you are uh, spending emotionally, you know, you go through the the, the, the simple example is you're going through the checkout line and there's a there's a, a magazine there or something like that that you don't need that you probably won't read, but it's interesting and it has Star Wars on the cover. You like Star Wars, so you buy the thing, right? Um, I actually, right behind me to my left, I have a reminder. I, I did that. I've got a cousin who likes Star Wars and I saw you know, one of these magazines that had Star Wars on it. I was going to buy the magazine and ship it off to him. And uh, I bought the magazine. I set it on the counter and it's been there for a month and a half. Like it's <laughs> like, so best intentions, totally stupid purchase. You mentioned the study of the 65 plus year olds with the yeah. economic downturn and how a huge percent of them ended up selling. And then a few months later, the market had not only returned, but was doing better than ever. Let's focus on the investing part itself, because I feel like this is where people really get stuck. Yep. 
Is investing hard? I mean, why do we get so stuck on this? I, I, why do we get stuck on it? That's a, it's a great question. Well, because there's all kinds of interested parties that want us to get stuck and hire them. Like that's the reality. And that's the financial industrial complex. And there's an enormous number of advisors that will help you manage money. And I think that every single one of those advisors is a complete waste of money. Hmm. Um, uh, because there's plenty of research, you know, study after study after study after study says that nobody adds consistent alpha through stock selection. Nobody ever does. And yet we have stockbrokers still exist that doing it. Financial advisors say they can pick better mutual funds. You know, uh, there are analysts that talk about handicapping their different investment choices and, and they think they can time markets and they think they can, and none of them can. And all the research says they can't. Um, what, what we have is we have uh, a large distribution of people trying. When you have a large distribution of people trying, some are going to be successful. They are going to get a ton of attention when they're successful. After they get a ton of attention, people are going to give them money to manage, and then they're going to revert to the mean. So there's a ton of, uh, you know, all these great, 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 great investment advisors are great. Then they're seen. Then they get the money that that people want to invest with them. Then they're not great anymore. Um, And that's that trajectory happens over and over and over and over and over and over and over. So I think we have to be cautious with what we want. Like what we want is to outperform. Like we have this culture of outperformance. You can't. So stop trying. And by stopping the trying, doing it simply, doing it easily, you can end up with better performance, right? It's the, it's the trying that actually hurts our performance. If you stop trying, you know, build things out of broadly diversified portfolios of equities, you know, stop stocks, uh, you know, picking this fund or this stock or this investment over that one and just own it all. Over time, you will do very, very, very well. And the question is, will you get to enough? Yes, you'll get to enough. I want to sign your name on the statement here. You cannot time the market. You cannot beat the market. Do you feel comfortable with that? I'm absolutely positive of that. Regardless of the hype, right? Regardless of the hype, you can't do it. You know, you made this point that financial advice in many ways, at least when it comes to the market, isn't particularly beneficial what is the role of financial advice then? Obviously, you've made your living doing this, giving financial advice. Help me understand how those things feel like they contradict each other. So I had a, I had a client. So we, we've we've done, I don't know, 10 events a year for the last 10, 15 years of my of my practice. And two of those events have been sort of market commentary. And so I've had I had this one client who kept coming back to the market commentary. And like after his fifth or sixth one, he said, Jonathan, I think I finally get it. You don't manage investments, you manage people. So we build portfolios and then we help our clients stick with the portfolios that we build. We don't change the portfolios very often, except for the occasional rebalance. We certainly don't like, oh, now it's time to overemphasize equities and now's the time to sell bond. We don't do that. No one can do that successfully. So what can advisors do? The first thing is we can help people understand what they really want to accomplish. We can help them be introspective, you know, give them, you know, I've worked with 300 families on their deep financial plans. I I have an idea about what it is people 
want out of life. So I can say, Hey, how do you feel about this and this and this and this and this and have a conversation and, and, and try to understand what's important to them. Then I can help them write a financial plan that includes those things, that emphasizes those things, that prioritizes those things. And then I can help them design a, a plan appropriate asset allocation. And then the most important part is I can help them hold on to that asset allocation when it's uncomfortable. Uh, no matter how you do it, it will be uncomfortable. And your entire success will be based on whether you can hold it when it's uncomfortable, whether you are a very conservative investor who right now, conservative conservative investors have since inflation has come and since the bond market has been crushed, all those people that were conservative investors are now questioning that conservatism, right? So they shouldn't question it. If they are conservative, they should stick with that conservative thing and they should keep moving forward with that. The flip side is if you're an equity investor, like when markets go up, that you, you get excited and you want to add more, that's probably not the time to you know add more. And when it goes down, you get depressed and you want to you want to actually withdraw from those equities. That's equally damaging, right? You don't want to do that. And so, so this whole concept of picking an appropriate portfolio and just sticking with it. The goal is to stick with it, rebalance occasionally, but stick with it. And that's managing people. That's not managing portfolios. And that's when you think of the Morningstar research or the Vanguard research, they all basically say the same, say the same thing. Half of the benefit of hiring an advisor. There's a bunch of technical stuff, you know, eight or nine technical buckets that advisors can help with, but half of the benefit is is behavioral support, helping you do the right things and stick to your plan. It seems like sticking to your plan is a really big problem. Are the odds stacked against us? Talk about American society. Why is sticking to a basic financial plan so difficult? The first problem is we don't plan. The first problem is we don't ever begin the process of planning. And then we're just sort of investing, shooting from the hip, picking stocks based on headlines or what we think is going to happen, right? So that's the, the first issue. Once we have a plan, and I think there's a there's a minority of people that actually do financial planning. Um, but, you know, I, I basically I give away on our website a uh, a rudimentary retirement plan, um, and people download it right, and they they can build it themselves. Uh, and it's it's a fantastic tool. I'm super proud of it as a spreadsheet. The question is, once you have it, if you've done the work, um, then how do you stick with it? Well. This is where mindfulness comes in. This is where it's really, really important to create a um, a space between external stimulus and internal response. Um, and, and that's precisely what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is a moment for you to say, I have this feeling that I should do something differently, but that's just a feeling. That's not what I should do. What's my plan say? My plan says I should do this monthly contribution of twelve hundred bucks to my to my investment portfolio and then rebalance once a year. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, in my in in a moment of calm mind and in a moment of of planning orientation where things weren't haywire in the world, I made made this decision based on quality information. I think I can stick with this now and not react to whatever the emotional thing is of the day. We're, we're not very emotionally intelligent creatures. Um, we, are, we are very driven by our emotions and our thoughts. Uh, and so the, the idea of mindfulness actually plays very heavily into A, remember to do a plan. B, how do I stick with that plan? I feel like there are darker forces out there, which are actually trying to take us off our mindfulness game. Talk about some of those. I mean, they're people out there trying to get us to spend our money, right? 
So there's, there's, there's people trying to get us to spend money. I mean, everyone that has a product wants us to spend money on their product. Um, and they they know all the tricks. They know the, the music to be in the background. They know the colors to put in their ads. They know, and they've they've A-B tested this and A-B-C tested it and A-B-C-D tested it. They've tested it over and over and over. So they know exactly how to move you to purchase. Amazon is, is genius at this. Oh, you purchased this book? You might like this book. Oh, in this course. Oh, in this other thing, right? Um, so- we are in a battle, you know, against forces aligned against us in terms of our own financial success. They want us to buy their products. We probably ought to think about saving. We actually want their products and we've never thought about our own plans. So it's really easy for us to kind of fall off that track. Uh, in the financial services world, I mean, there are so many products out there that are just dumb uh, and, and people buy them all the time. There's all kinds of private stuff. Um, that there's no, there's no uh, uh, coherent history of because every single one of them is private and different, and so you lump them all together and say, on average, they make thirteen percent when the markets do eleven percent, and therefore you should do these instead. And you can't do that because there's no on average because they're all unique and different, right? So it's not, it doesn't work that way. You're going to get the one that goes down five, doesn't go up thirteen, right? That's uh, unless you're really, really, really lucky. Uh, but yeah, the, the the world of investment choices is driven by marketing dollars, it's driven by attention, it's driven by um, the, the peer groups, you know, the idea of NFTs and the SPAC things that we just had. And, and I, I rail against uh, crypto, even when it's high, I rail against crypto. Like I, I just I just don't see it uh, as, a, as a value add kind of a thing or something we can pick. I think I see it as a destructive force. Um, it's, it's difficult to stay on plan because there are including our own internal psychology, our own internal fears and greeds. Um, but there's all of this world out there trying to attract us, trying to get us to do something that benefits them. So this is complicated, right? There's lots of forces allied against us. You even said it yourself. Most people don't even have a financial plan. Is there such thing as happiness without being mindful about money? I mean, are all these people in trouble then because happiness is just not something they're going to get to? It's, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Are, are there people that are happy without having a plan? Sure. Um, I, I, you know, there are other countries like, like Bhutan is known as the happiest country in the world. I'm pretty sure the people in Bhutan don't have much of a financial plan. Um, it's, you know, it's shorter term. It's, it's, it's hand to mouth. It's, uh, it's getting through the day, getting through the week, but they can be, you can totally be happy. When we talk about happiness, we're talking about the big picture well-being, you know, uh, happiness and sort of um, what's it, eudaimonic happiness, uh, uh, not hedonic happiness. Or so, is it possible? Yes. Is it likely in our scenario? So the question is, what's practical? Is it more practical to just hope, um, you know, work a bit, save a bit, not really think about it, um, and then kind of deal with the emotions as they arise? Or is it more practical to think about it, see what's important to you, put your ladder on the right wall, um, you know, make decisions based on potential outcomes, uh, based on expected outcomes, based on research that we know, things we know is important to people, things we know that that lead to happiness. And I think it's just more practical, more pragmatic to have a plan. Uh, and I think it's your probability of success. And, and, and we don't understand probabilities very well, but I think that I think everything is in probability. Everything is in you will increase your possibilities and probabilities of success if you have a plan and you stick to the plan. 
Can you be happy without it? Sure. Do you want to take the chance? Is there any likelihood that a third party will step up and make these things better for most of us? I mean, the government is always talking about things like Medicare, things like Social Security, ways that your average American can protect themselves a little bit from economic unknowns. We've been talking a lot today about personal responsibility. Do the laws have to also change? I mean, is this something that goes out of the realm also of personal responsibility and is on a much bigger level something that the government should be working on? I mean, this this is a great question. And there's there's tests going on with this all over the place. Um, and the idea of basic income is is old. UBI, yeah. UBI. Um, and and there's there's BI and there's UBI, and they're 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 often conflated, but they're totally different things. Um you, 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 well, we don't have to get into those details. But but if if we had basic income, uh, and I and I would say that that's it's a good solution. It's a good solution for shared prosperity. The the issue we're seeing today in media, more than most other issues, is this idea of ever increasing inequality. I I sort of question the idea that we have ever increasing inequality. I think that his, history has shown us that over generations, most of the people at the top end of the spectrum fall over time, and most of the people at the lower end of the spectrum rise over time. And then over longer periods of time, it becomes kind of random where people end up, right? So, and I'm talking generations, not one family, but three, four, five generations, you get people in the lowest quartile end up in the top quartile and people in the top quartile end up in the lowest quartile. So there's a lot of movement up and down um, wealth levels. And I, and I think that there could be a legislative you know, we we could do that. It would be different than what we have done in the past, but it's not different when you think about other countries. Other countries have done things that have been that have improved things, and we've actually taken steps. You know, the Affordable Care Act is is new relatively yeah. in the United States, and that's that's a support for for families and people. Uh, uh, and and you know, the the earned income tax credit is always talked about as a way to improve incomes for people at the lower end. That being said. Social Security was designed as as one third of your retirement income, and there's way too many people that are relying on it as their only retirement income. And so, we haven't done a very good job. Social Security still pays out if you earn money and you're in Social Security, it still pays out. In the worst case scenario of Social Security bankruptcy, people will still get seventy five percent of their benefits, and that means maybe people on the higher end will get less benefits, people on the lower end will get all their benefits. So that you know who gets what isn't figured out yet. The thing that's failed isn't Social Security. The thing that's failed is our personal responsibility. So, and the only thing I can affect is somebody's responsibility. I can only really help one person make decisions for them. I really, aside from voting and maybe it's someday running for an office, but I'm not saying that's ever something I'm going to do. Uh, you know, I'm not going to change the big picture. I advocate for it. I interview people on my podcasts about basic income and I, and I think it's a, probably a great solution. Do I see us going there? Not right now. It's it could come. So if we want to take personal responsibility, especially someone who's listening right now and saying, "Yes, I want to be more mindful. Yes, I want to work on happiness and build this financial plan." Is there a single good first step? Because I find that that's where people get stuck is going from inaction to action. What's that kind of first thing people can do? So if you if you want to just make your life better, the first thing you can do, and I and I, and I mean this with all sincerity, is is commit to sitting ten minutes a day. 
I mean, that, that, that actually opens up an enormous amount of space in your own brain for doing the rest of it, whether it's, you know what, I want to get healthy finally. You know what, I really need to improve my relationship with my spouse or my kids, or I want to improve my finances. Understanding and lifting the veil from reality a little bit helps you make better decisions in every piece of your life. Also reduces stress. It does all kinds of positive things for you. Improves your health. It's all kinds of reasons to do it. So if you're going to do just one thing, I would say do that thing because I know that that will lead to improvement in all the other areas. If we're talking about specifically about finance, what can I do to to help myself get better in the in my financial you know wherewithal um, investment portfolios, etc. Uh, I, I think the thing to, to do is plan. I think to do to, the first thing to do is to really be introspective about what's important to you. Um, what is it you're trying to accomplish? What is it that, you know, you have these list of eight things that makes us happy. What's, what makes you happy? What, what is the really important stuff that you want to accomplish? And when you look back on your life, you want to say, yeah, I did that, right? That's, and think about that and then enabling that through planning. Jonathan Dio, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. I love the fact that we start on these conversations talking about money, but where we really end with is mindfulness, lifting the veil of some of those illusions and trying to see life as it is, realizing that money is a tool to help us be happy and to do those things that are meaningful for us. You talk about this a lot in your book, Mindful Money. There's tons of detail we didn't go into Um, So I do suggest you go out and buy the book. Uh, But I wanted to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where can we find you if we want to learn more? First and foremost, what is coming up next in your life? Um, So next in my life, I've actually just received this. This happened while I was on my meditation retreat. I received the, the, um, what what do you call it, the the advance on the next book. Congratulations! So I'm, I'm, wow. Thank you very much. I, uh, I'm I'm writing mindful investing, um, so I'm taking that final chapter and I'm trying to make the thing that people go to advisors most for that advisors can't give them. I'm trying to give them that thing for free. That way they can go to or for fourteen ninety five or whatever the book cost is. Basically, essentially for free, mm-hmm. um, and then they can go to the advisors for the things that the advisors can actually help them with, which is the planning and the sticking to the plan. Um, but that's the next thing that's up in my life is is I'm 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 writing uh, the mindful investing book um, or editing or finishing it, uh, and at the same time we are we've got all these courses and all these things we're finding ways to get those out into the world and there everything's available you can find all the social media stuff on at mindful.money that's uh, mindful.money not mindful.money.com just mindful.money. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Jonathan DeYo. That's a wrap. Awesome. I leave things running just a few minutes to do the after show. So I just kind of include fun conversation afterwards. Um, I I mean, I I love that conversation. And, you know, one thing that I, after reading your book, and it's something that I had to be real cognizant of in my book too, is like, you don't want to get bogged down into the deep financial conversations. And you didn't in your book, which I think is 
completely appropriate. And I had the same thing while writing Taking Stock. It was the same idea. It's like those conversations are important, but they're not actually at the heart and the center of what I want to say. And I got that same feeling from reading Mindful Money. Absolutely. Yep. The, 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 some of the stuff we didn't cover is, and I can't, I guess this is, we're still recording. So yes, we are. Yeah. Careful what you say. <laughs> uh, You're I, still I on tape, that, buddy. Yeah. yeah, I'm on tape. So I, I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of advisors out there that I want to, I want to eliminate from the industry <laughs> because they're just, it's just how they make money. Like, right. It's not, they're not actually providing value. Um, so there are those advisors that do the planning and do deep stuff and, and help people with this kind of stuff. And I think that's, that's where people can actually get a lot of benefit. Uh, you know, how do we, as an industry actually become fiduciaries? How do we really help people help people? And that's, you know, that's always the problem I've had is I love the idea of fiduciary, right? And certainly I would never go to someone who isn't a fiduciary, but just because they are a fiduciary does not necessarily mean that you're going to get the highest quality best because there's just too much wiggle room, unfortunately, there, right? I mean, there is. It's, I, I, again, I love the concept, but we're not really good at defining what a true fiduciary is. Right. Yeah. And it's, the legal definition isn't good enough. Uh, um, and it's it's the legal definition, so we have to follow that, those of us who are fiduciaries, but it doesn't really give you, you know, what are the qualifications? What are the, da, 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 da. it doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. It's just, I've agreed to put my clients first. And that that def, the definition of put my clients first is kind of all over the map and how people do it. And tell me about, um, so you just said you received your advance. So you're going with which publisher, if you care to elaborate or talk about that? Uh, N- New World Library, the same Got people it. that published my first my first Got book. It. Got it. You had a pretty good experience with them? I had a fantastic experience with them. They were so great to work with. Uh, editing was fantastic. The design was fantastic. Just the people were lovely. I just, I really like New World Library. I really like them. Very cool. Are you, did, go ahead. Did you ever read... Um, the Peaceful Warrior, Dan Millman. I feel like I might have. It's old. It's been out for a long time, right? Oh, yeah. I, I read it 30 years ago. 30, yeah, years I ago. feel like maybe 20 years ago I might have read that. So it's Dan. The, the way I found New World Library was, you know, I had I had a, an agent say, go to your bookshelves. Look at the books that you um, you remember that stood out. There were books that you liked and loved uh, and you, when you read them. And so Peaceful Warrior is one that sort of was life-changing for me in, in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read it and I was like, oh, New World Library published this. And so I, huh. I sent them my proposal and they were like, they're the ones. So wow. very cool. You're yeah. like, perfect. One and done. Was it the only place you sent the proposal? <laughs> no, no, no. We, we had, I think it went out to like 12 different places. Uh, at the end, we only had a couple interested parties and they were the one that, uh, I that you like the most. Awesome. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.